Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to Chapter 9 of the Corona Diaries. Um, we are still doing our remote recordings. We've, uh, life hasn't changed anything. Uh, Boris hasn't freed us from lockdown as yet, uh, though who knows what Boris is going to do next. Um, Mr Steve Hogarth is sat in front of me, um, freshly back from the dentist, H, I believe. Did you say Steve Hogarth? I did, didn't I? Ah, uh, uh, Steve Garth. Um, I am freshly back from the dentist, both of me. <laughs> and um, uh, I was just about to say something that's left me head. So, yes, I'm back from the dentist, and here I am. And I've got a um, pop shield today, so I, don't, I won't have to be quite so careful about emphasising my peas. I won't have to watch my peas. I never watched my cues. I was, I was more of a pea watcher than a cue watcher. This is going to take us into a whole blockbuster conversation, isn't it? But we'll leave that... <laughs> Let's leave that one. <laughs> We're all queue watchers now, aren't we, in a sense, aren't we? Yes, yes. Queue standers and queue watchers. So I am, in fact, watching my P's and Q's quite literally most of the time. Not that I'm watching people peeing or anything like that. I, I don't even know where to go with that, so I'm just going to no, leave that. No, leave that hanging. Let's leave that one hanging. You'll pardon the visual conversation. <laughs> Uh, You know, this is always loose, but it's already looser than normal. Um, Right. Um, A few things I wanted to start with. We're going to have to put a section in on shows about where we're making errors. And it's not actually we, it's me, actually, in pronunciation. Because there's been a a bit of a pronunciation backlash. Um, So you had a message from... Andrew, the comic book wildman. Not quite sure what that means. Don't know if you know what that means. I do know what that means. Oh, do you? Oh, do yeah, tell. But I'm not telling you. Oh, go on. Um, he um, he makes comic books. And he approached us once about, um, you know, doing some kind of cabal, cab, cabaleration. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm at it now. It's catching up. I, I haven't got enough PPE on, otherwise I wouldn't have caught that. But it's too late. Uh, he approached us about doing our collaboration, um, which was sort of comic book based. And in the end, I don't, I don't think it happened, uh, or it happened and I wasn't looking, one or the other. Right, I don't remember seeing Andrew. And, that, certainly and he was it. called Andrew Wildman. That's him. So when he's not writing comics, he's he's uh, he's in the. Oxford Bloody Dictionary, looking up pronunciation. Well, exactly, exactly. When he's not writing comics, he's complaining about my pronunciation. Um, but Put apparently, the dictionary down, Andrew. Pick up your pen and get on with it. Yes, yes. Come on, the world is waiting for a, your, some form get of get your crayons out and put the dictionary down. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, it's apparently <laughs> it's pay tree on. 
apparently. Pay Pay tree on. Not Patreon, it's Patreon. Uh, and he wrote it out very nicely. P-A-Y-T-R-E-E-O-N. Patreon. So, uh, and that was the first kind of shot across the bows. And I you know, probably wouldn't have mentioned that had it not been then that it all it all kicked off in Wales after that. Uh, because uh. you might remember Mr. Evans from Hollyhead who'd uh, asked us a question uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um can't remember what the question was, to be honest, but he asked the question, and, and I struggled with his name, spelled D-E-W-I, right. and we talked D-E-W-I. a little bit about Dewey, Dewey, we didn't really know what it was. So Jen Phillips, bless her, got in touch to say it's pronounced Dewey, D-O-W-E, and she should know because she's in Bangor, and Bangor's not far from Hollyhead, so that's the reasoning she gave, and that was fine, and that was fine. But then Mr. Evans himself jumped in to correct yeah. Jen to say mm. that actually she was wrong. So you don't pronounce it the way that she said. You have to imagine Debbie. that it's Debbie, but you replace the B's with a single Debbie. W. So it oh, becomes Dewey. Dewey. So Dewey, I guess. Debbie. Well, that's not Dewey. like Debbie, is it? Well, I, I don't we have know. to be Dewey. Dewey. Well, maybe it is Dewey. Dewey. Like, you know, free Dewey. Yes. And all of that. Yeah. Dewey. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Dewey. And all that. He stopped. Think of it as Dewey. So, well, we'll go with Dewey for now, and then uh, no doubt Dewey can write in and tell us that's wrong. <laughs> we'll correct it next week. He's it's, it's, it's caveated it by saying that it's Dewey in a Welsh accent. Yeah. Ah, beautiful. Dewey. Dewey. So if we're sticking on Dewey, then I think we're, we're about there. Um, right. So I'm hoping that's put the whole thing to bed. I can feel all our podcast listeners just dropping off as we speak. Yeah, we yeah. better move on. We better move on. Karen Chambers, by the way, has been listening in her core blimey trousers, but we'll leave that one alone. And Good one girl. last thing of, of bits and pieces of news coming back. The, the purple Q&A. So we do a Q&A for our Patreon um, uh, members, the purple Patreoners. And Zoe the Ruth Lydia Barraclough, great name. Yes. Um has come I had back. to widen my spreadsheet for her. Yeah, I bet you did. I bet you, you had I, to get her in. I, I bet you had to do something with your column, didn't you? <laughs> An adjustment had to be made. Yeah, my yes. column had to be widened. My column had to be widened. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, I'm just telling you how it is. Yes, no, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Um, apparently, because you've got a thing about the texture of rhubarb, the rhubarb texture disappears if you add orange or lemon peel or zest when you're mm, making your That crumble. is good to know. That's a life changer. It is. I, I will. So that kind of weird I'm texture on, on your teeth, that kind of glazy mm. texture on your teeth, that goes away mm. with rhubarb. It's orange or lemon peel or zest you need. Mm. So we, actually, we need this, the solution to scones now. That needs to be brought forward. Yes. Well, Zoe Ruth, Lydia Barraclough... Uh, you the one that's caused the widening of the column. If you can come back to us with a scone or scone-based uh, solution, uh, including how to say it, um, that would be mm. that would be great. Um, so anyway, with all that out of the way, we can get on to normal, normal business. Because um, right. it's been worrying me, I have to say. Um, it's been preying on my mind. Um, Jennifer Welling sent yeah. us a really nice question. So... We were going to kind of carry on with Ice Cream Genius a bit this week, but we've decided to, to not do that and talk a little bit about Jennifer's question um, mm. because it was a really nice question the way she, she put it in. So would you and Ant talk about Estonia? 
It's a song many of us turn to at difficult times in our lives. Maybe I haven't been paying attention all these years, but I don't know the backstory. I found myself craving the song again today for something that happened in my community on Saturday and realising I didn't really know how you found the words. Well, I, I'm, I'm all right with words. I'm not too good with dates. Um, and I can't off the top of my head without looking it up, but you can always Google it. Um, tell you what, what date and what year the Estonia tragedy happened. But, but essentially the SS Estonia was a ferry um, which was travelling between Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, and Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. Um, one, I think it was in the winter, pretty sure it was, it might have been November, don't know where I've got that from. I just can't remember, but it's it's all Googleable, and um, it tragically sank. The it was a roll on roll off ferry, and the bow, the bow was actually on huge hinges, um, and the whole bow of the the ship would would raise to get the trucks on and off at either end, and the cars and whatnot. And something went wrong, and the bow doors either weren't secured or they failed. There are even conspiracy theories that they were deliberately um, dynamited, um, which is a whole other can of worms. But um, cut a long story short, um, as far as the news is concerned, it, it, it sank and it sank with about a thousand people and was the worst maritime disaster in terms of loss of life since the Titanic, I think. Um, so that happened, and that was in the news and everything. And, and as is so often with things in the news, they they have a habit of falling into my lap um, a little bit later. I was in Stockholm doing some promotion stuff for EMI. Um, I think that was either for Brave or for Afraid of Sunlight. So it would have been about 93 or 94. And I got on a plane to come home to London. And I was on the plane coming home, um, sat in an aisle seat in economy, as you do. And a chap across the aisle from me kept looking at me, um, you know, and kept sort of raising his eyebrows as if he'd like to have a chat. And in the end, you know, in the end, he went, "All right." And I went, "Yeah, yeah, you, you all right?" Yeah. And he said, "Well, you know, what, what, you, where are you from?" And I said, "Oh, I'm from England, and I'm going home." And said, yeah, so am I. What, what brings you to Stockholm? So I said, "Oh, you know, I'm in a band, and um, I've been doing some interviews in in Stockholm. How about you?" And he said, "Well, I'm, I've, I'm just, I, I'm a film. I, I'm making a movie. I'm making a documentary." Um, I said, all right, what about? And he said, do you, do you remember that ferry, the Estonia, that sank in the Baltic? Um, and I said, yeah, of course. I said, well, you, you know, why Why are you making a documentary about that? He said, well, I was on it. I said, what? And uh, his name was Paul Barney, and he was the only British survivor of that tragedy. Um and during the course of the flight, he told me, he gave me a moment-by-moment moment account of everything that happened. And I was in tears listening to it. It was, was, was harrowing. Um, 
He was asleep on the restaurant deck uh, again, which is probably what saved his life because that was that was well well above water. And he woke up um, because he'd rolled off the couch he was lying on because the because of the angle of the the room he was now in, yeah. which was at sort of forty five degrees. And the entire ship kept um, kept lying down, and in and, and in the end, he climbed up the electrical installations on the ceiling, you like a ladder, and out through a window. Uh, and he said, when he first came around, there there were there was still I think it there were still electric lights on, and there was a voice over the tannoy telling people to sit and wait for further advice. And uh, he said, I thought, well, bugger that. I'm out of here. And a great many people went to their deaths waiting for further advice. And I think that's a lesson to us all. If if you're ever in a situation, and I mean, I'm thinking of Grenfell as well now. If you're ever in a situation where people, you know, officialdom gives you advice that is contrary to your instincts, follow your instincts, you know, because... They, they, they're generally right. And if, if they tell you to sit tight and not worry about the fire that's in the building, get the fuck out of the building and bollocks to them. Um, and so, you know, the, the, that's what he did. He, he decided to get get out of there. And he, he, he told me the whole story. He ended up on the deck. And all the lights had gone out by, by, by this time, so everything was pitch black. He made his way out of the side window and, and onto the deck, and he was hanging onto um, a railing, a rail along the side of the deck. And then he said, at one point, the moon came out, and he could suddenly see, and he, he realised that he was standing next to another bloke that he didn't even know was there. Right. And he said, we both looked at each other, and then we both, we both spotted this uh, life life belt that was on the opposite side of the deck on the railing and we were both plucking up the courage to run and uh, in the end he went first and as he went as he went the uh, the entire boat swung in the other direction a wave broke over the deck and he'd gone and that was the end of him and he, so he said he said he said had i run I wouldn't be here telling you this story, but but he ran and he was washed overboard, and then the the boat levelled out again, and I, I I ran and I managed to get this life vest around my neck. And he said, in the moonlight uh, up at the um, the bow end or where the bow had been, um, he could see people jumping into the water, and there were life rafts in the water which were big sort of circular things uh, with like, you know, they have like a tent on top of them. They have a, you know, they've got like, they're, yeah. they're, they're like a conical shape on top. And he said, so I, it took me a while to pluck up the courage to jump because it was a long way down. And he said, in the end I jumped, I found myself in the freezing cold sea. Um, and I managed to scrabble my way to this life raft and I climbed into it. He said in moments after, and there were other people in it already, he said and within moments of climbing into it, a wave hit it and it turned completely upside down. He said, so then we were all underwater inside this thing, this, this covering. Um, 
And he said, I managed to get out and scrabble round, uh, around onto the upturned base, uh, onto the bottom of this life. Again, he said, in that moment, a lot of people didn't get out. And he he said so. Then there was, you know, people kept appearing, and in the end, there was a, there was a, a handful of us on top of this life raft, this upturned life raft, clinging on however we could. And uh, he said the at that point the waves were thirty feet high, so there was there was waves the size of houses breaking over this thing with these people trying to cling to it and they said every time a wave broke over us there was fewer of us um and he was in the water he was he was there in like that for i think it was four hours before a helicopter came and and got him off um and so he'd he'd been he'd been to estonia to, to uh, these years later, to to try and make a movie, uh, to try and uh, raise awareness of the plight of uh, Estonians, particularly where there wasn't much of a welfare state, because people who'd lost their husbands had lost their their only means of of income. So not only did they have to cope with the bereave, bereavement, but they were they were now destitute as well. And he was he was just trying to raise awareness and help people out. And he was he was going to do a a little concert in uh, some town hall in Henley or somewhere. Um, and uh, he asked me if we'd help. So I said, "Well, when is it?" You know, and I found out when it was. And agreed that you know me, me, Stephen, uh, and Pete agreed we'd go down there and do a little Austrios thing, and you know to try and help raise some dosh. And in the meantime, between making that agreement and doing it, I wrote the song and worked it up. Um, Steve had that rolling doodle doom doom doodle doom doom. Um, and I kind of took it from there. And we performed that song as three-piece before we ever recorded it properly um, at the at this uh, little benefit thing that Paul had arranged. And Paul is actually um, a landscape gardener by profession. And I think he'd been over in Estonia looking at plants or something, and something to do with... Um, with uh, bot- botany, um, so he gave me his card. I've still got his card somewhere, and it says Paul Barney, landscape artist. And that's uh, how I came to write this song. But obviously, although this song is about specifically the the Estonia tragedy, it's more broadly about bereavement and. You know what happens to people when they die if you love them, and and how if you do love them, then they don't really leave you, you know, because they they stay with you. And I choose to believe that that you know they're somewhere in no pain at all, giggling. Um, that's how I think of my mum and dad. Yeah. Um. And no one leaves you when they live in your heart and mind. 
and no one leaves you when you live in theirs. Um, so, you know, the spiritualist view is that we are just spirits and we pass from one one form to another. Um, some people believe that we go round again, you know, and that sometimes we're even, you know, that our grandmothers are reborn as our children or as our best friends. And, uh, it's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful thought. So, so that that's what Estonia is about and where it came from. And I guess with what Jennifer said and the way you were talking about that, there's also that element of um, loss when people are taken ahead of their time. So that does point you towards things like Grenfell and things like um, you know um, the Estonia tragedy. And I suppose you could even see the parallels with where we are now. Um, with people yeah. who are, you know, who who are, you know, not, sort of being taken be- before that might have been the the point in time, and 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 that has always flowed through that lyric for me. That whole sense of, you know, yes, n- n- somebody doesn't leave you, but also there's that bit of, you know, it, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't it wasn't how it was supposed to work out for that mm. particular victim. Um, yeah, we we played it at my own father's funeral. Um, just the record, you know. I didn't sing it or anything. I wouldn't have been able to. But we played the the, the song um, at, at his cremation, uh, and I think it's a really hopeful song. And it's there's there's a lot of words in it that that can give people comfort at times like that. And I'm I'm often asked to to scribble scribble those words out for people. Some people have them tattooed on themselves. Other people, um, you know, use them in funerals or whatever when they when they lose people. But um, that's that's it. That's Estonia. The interesting thing about that song as well is um, it's probably my favourite song that's then been touched or remixed or you know altered by somebody else. And I adore the version that's on the Positive Light album. Um, which has a real build uh, in the in the middle of it, which kind of kind of a sort of a very dance esque kind of um, build, really. It's that kind of feel the way they've done it, but it, it's there's, there's such a positive sense of hope about that as well. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know if that's intentional or not, and chimes with a lyric, but there's something about the way that remix went that has that real uh, and euphoric seems the right the wrong term in terms of the lyric but there's there's something very positive and very hopeful about how that remix turned out how did the positive light thing even even well, happen the positive light were two guys um i think they were both called mark um there were two marks and there was a mark who uh, who was the kind of charming hustler who got onto our radar somehow by by some kind of persistence and contacted us and said, have you ever had any of your stuff sort of remixed for, you know, for dance, for, for you know, by DJs? And we said, no, don't think we had at that time. And um, we we kind of went into that then as an experiment. And the other mark was... I don't know. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I got the feeling the other mark was the talent. 
uh, and I can't remember his name on his second name either. Um, but he Mark one and Mark two. Mark one and Mark two. Mark two had um, a studio on Jersey, on the Channel Islands, and I went there. You know, I went over there and and sat in with him while he was working. Um, and um, he had a really interesting way of working. He, they'd get up in the morning, you know, on this island and uh, have 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 breakfast, a bit of coffee, and then skin up, and then he'd be off his head from about mid morning. And he got out of the studio uh, and run the track, and he just sat. They just they just sit at the back of the control room, you know, smoking a joint. <laughs> You know, just sort of with her eyes half closed, just just sailing around inside the music. And then every now and again he'd get up and he'd just, he'd wander over and he'd just take something out of mute and put it back in again and leave that running. And then he'd kind of sit back down and see <laughs> see how he felt about that. <laughs> so it was a total kind of other way of working where, where you're, you know, much more Jamaican, I guess. Um I remember going to Barbados, you know, years ago on holiday, and these guys would always be coming up to you on the beach trying to sell you drugs, and he's saying, you want something to smoke? What do you do, man? You look like you could be an artist or something. I said, yeah, I'm a musician. Oh, you're a musician. Oh, great, man. I've got some stuff here. I go, oh, it's all right. I don't smoke. And they just look at you. Like, you're a musician, and you don't smoke. That's like saying, you know, you're a chef, and you don't eat. Um, so they couldn't get their heads around how you could be a musician without being stoned, and I, and I think Mark too belonged to that particular camp. That, uh, and so did the Beatles, didn't they? I mean, I've been reading about them lately, and and you know they were sort of permanently stoned <laughs> when they were working. You know, <laughs> after um, you know after about Beatles for Sale, all the other all the other albums were created stoned. Um, so Mark Mark used to work like that he'd just sort of get up and do a little bit of the desk and you know with his eyes half closed and unmute a couple of things mute a couple of things and then sit back down you know and while I was just sitting there watching it all going on thinking well this is different um, so that's how that came about so whatever you're getting from Estonia you know, I, I think you probably are getting euphoria and joy because he was in a permanent state of euphoric joy. And I think, you know, all that, all that dance music, whether you love it or hate it, is is all about joy, isn't it? It's all about, you know, the the uh, being in a heightened state and whether that whether the people creating it and or listening to it have taken drugs to get there or not the the purpose of the music is is to lift people um and and so when you apply that ethos to a song that is maybe as sober as, as Estonia uh although although even at its most sober it has a very positive message then, then you can you can lift it, I guess, and 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 it was it, it was a beautiful thing what they did to that. Mm, I also really love. There was a guy called Cameron Laswell, who did some remixes for us as well. An American guy, just a total amateur, did them in his shed or somewhere, and um, his remix of Quartz is uh, is one of my favourite 
of all the remixes I've ever heard. So check check that out if you haven't heard it. The Quartz remix by Cameron Laswell is just incredible. Cool. Right. Well, we um we, we're about we're about to diary time, so um we'll uh, we'll clear the floor um for the diary, which uh this week is the fourteenth to the twenty first of October. Uh, and we're coming to the end of the holidays in Eden tour, uh, so I think we're going to cover the last few, the last few dates uh, in that, and um, over, over to H to uh, to continue to get himself comfortable, every sitting comfortably, uh, and then we'll we'll come back for a few questions after that. Righty ho! I will I will pick up the diary. I will don my. Um... My diary reading hat, uh, which is uh, something uh, that's woven from goat hair in Pakistan. I was really um, hoping it was going to be purple and crushed velvet. And, and, and beju- it's bejeweled. It's bejeweled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say bejazzled then, but that's a totally different <laughs> thing, bejazzled. isn't it? It is. It is. That's an, an entirely other other thing that, that I'm not even going to go... I'm not going there, because... We've lowered the tone enough during these podcasts, haven't right. we? I mean, what with the widening of columns and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'll get on to that. I'll get on to that. Here it is. Here it is now. Monday, 14th of October, Ludwigsburg. Arrived around 11am at the venue and went to catering for breakfast. I think I've played here before with Christy Berg. Drove down the road to a neighbouring town where we were to stay and checked into the hotel. Went out and found a hairdresser's and had my roots done. Even back then. All my underwear is in the dressing room trunk again, so went and bought another pair so I could shower. Got back to the hotel at two and went to bed. Woke with a start at 4.15 to discover they'd gone to the gig without me. I'd changed hotel rooms so the tour manager must have been ringing the wrong room. Went to soundcheck by cab and during soundcheck suffered stabbing pain in right jaw joint. Went back to the hotel and back to sleep till eight. Peter Rieger, the promoter, had arranged a doctor to check out my jaw, which was still hurting. He said it was inflamed and injected a painkiller directly under my jaw into the joint. I've never seen the band exit a dressing room so quickly. Trish, on the other hand, said, Oh, I want to see this, and hung around. The show went well. The audience was extremely responsive, bless them. After show, declined to go for a quick drink with the opening act, The Violet Hour. I knew I'd end up sloshed and lost, and went back to the hotel for another 14 hours sleep. Tuesday, 15th of October, Offenbach. Up at 11ish and onto the bus. Sat up front for most of the journey, which was memorable only for bad traffic. There was no hotel, so much hanging around was to be had. Promoter's rep Heiko's wife had decided to do back and neck massage for 20 quid. So I had one to loosen up the joints and pass a bit of time. Did an interview with the German fan club chaps. They played me a selection of music which I was to listen to and comment on. It was fun. The show went well. 
To be honest, I can't remember much about it, but it must have hit the spot because one of the Germans said he'd been to quite a few shows on the tour and this was the best. After much debate over whether to leave the owl in the dressing room, Trish decided we should keep him. Mind you, she hadn't seen the letter that came with it. The owl is a sort of tribal wood carving which I was given as a gift at the same venue two years ago. It was wrapped and accompanied by a letter from a strange young lady, definitely a potential serial killer. We've been carrying the owl around in the dressing room case ever since, trying to find out if it's good or bad voodoo. Wednesday, 16th of October, Zurich Winterthur. Woke up to discover the bus was on the periphery of Zurich, and soon after we bundled out and up the narrow lane to the Hotel Rusli. Pete and I had stayed here earlier in the year during our fateful Swiss promo trip when the EMI rep who was supposed to handle everything had a drug and mistress-induced meltdown before our eyes and resigned from EMI rather than do the gig. His friend, a barman, ended up arriving and coordinating all the interviews in Geneva with amazing efficiency considering he'd never done it before. When Pete and I first arrived at Geneva Airport... Customs hauled Pete in for a body search. He always looks like he's up to something. It's just his natural body language. No one met us at the airport, but by some miracle, Pete had a piece of paper with the hotel address on it. After waiting an hour, there was still no sign of the EMI rep, so we changed up some Swiss francs and took a cab to the hotel. They'd never heard of us, so we had to find our own hotel. As I said... The EMI rep was in a vortex. He turned up four hours late, telling fibs, and took us to dinner with an Icelandic girl who was nuts. And everyone involved was running to the loo every 20 minutes to take more and more cocaine. I bailed out early, and that was the last we saw of him. The barman did the promo, and in the end Gabby Weiss travelled to Geneva and rescued us. She bundled us onto a train to Zurich and here to the Rusley Hotel, where Pete was to discover he'd lost the air tickets back home. That was in the days when you had to have an air ticket to travel. So new ones had to be bought. It was an interesting couple of days. Anyway, where was I? Well, it was nice to be back. Checked in and went to bed. Couldn't sleep, went for a walk and bought smellies and went to the gig, which was in a town called Winterthur which is Swiss for Long Johns. I might be making that up. When I arrived, it was a beautiful day, so the crew were mostly outside, some juggling in the afternoon sunshine. Juggling has rather caught on during this tour. The dressing rooms were fallout shelters. The hall acoustics were second to everything, and the audience was quiet. No wonder. Showtime was 7.45, and everyone must have come straight from work. The most memorable moment was towards the end, when a large section of the audience shook their hands, palms facing us, whilst making a strange Zulu-like whooping noise. Very spooky. I found it disturbing and intriguing in equal measure. I nearly ran off. Thursday, 17th of October. Zurich. Typical that on the day off the weather should desert us, grey and rainy. Nonetheless, I had a good walk around and came close to buying a 400 quid watch. You should have, said Dizzy later on the phone, bless her. Had lunch in a beautiful cafe on the Bahnhofstrasse. I had venison, 
which is, I'm told, a very typical Zurich Swiss thing to eat. Very nice. And Irish coffee. Must go there again if I get a chance. In the evening, I bumped into Queen drummer Roger Taylor in the hotel bar. He was in town with his band The Cross. Spent half the day panicking about my address book, which I thought I might have lost. But I'd left it on the bus. Friday, 18th of October. Milan. Got up early and bumped into Mad Jack in the breakfast room. I planned to go into town to buy the tag watch, which I didn't dare buy yesterday. Mark came with me for a stroll in the rain. Found jewellers and tried on said watch. We're still in Zurich at this point, by the way. Didn't like the look of it on my wrist, so didn't buy it. Phew, at least I got it out of my system. Went back and checked out of the hotel. Roger Taylor was in the breakfast room, so I wished him luck with the show at the Volkshaus. The drive to Milan was an experience. There's a number of tunnels through various mountains. One of them is five kilometres long. As we emerged on the Italian-Swiss side of the Alps, the weather changed completely to warm sunshine. Took a few photographs of mountains and lakes and went for a sleep. Woke up in Milan and went to the Cathedral Square before soundcheck. The gig was typically Italian, overflowing toilets and no room to move, no security and not as wandering in and out of the dressing room. The show was weird, screaming girls. It was like being in New Kids on the Block. Afterwards, I had a big row with Ian, who lost his rag with me for moaning at John Arneson. Both John and Paul, the tour manager, had left me on my own amidst a scrum of near-hysterical Italian fans, and I was merely pointing out that one of them should have been on hand instead of sitting on the tour bus chilling out. It was my first ding-dong with Ian, but I hope it's the last. It was a face-to-face confrontation, and he nearly hit me. Saturday, 19th of October, Lausanne. Arrived at the Hotel Yann at 7.30, where I debunked and checked in. Went straight to bed and didn't wake up until 3.15 in the afternoon. Soundcheck was at 4, so didn't have time for a walk. Damn. After soundcheck, I had an interview with Pierre-Michel Mayer, the balmy Swiss DJ. I like him, although he seems determined to stitch me up. The audience was first rate. You could feel the French influence, heart and soul, and we had a terrific evening. After the show, Daniela and Christian took us out for drinks to this sort of cocktail bar with a Latin American band, had a couple of beers and chatted to Bruno, a journalist from where I forget. Then it was adieu and onto the bus and into the sack. Ian came upstairs and apologised to me for losing his rag in Milan. Bless him. Sunday, 20th of October, Brussels, day off. Got up around 9.30. I hadn't slept well on the bus, so I went downstairs and chatted to Ray, who was driving. Belgium is not at its best when viewed from the motorway on a grey day, so it was a boring journey, apart from Ray and Tony's good-humoured banter. Ray said he was once driving home for Christmas and had to pull up to avoid hitting a turkey, which was walking on the motorway. He opened the door and it got in and sat next to him all the way home. He arranged an appointment with the local butcher but later changed his mind and set the bird free. I wonder how long it lasted. Arrived at the Sheraton, checked in and ordered lunch. Went for a walk in the rain and later bumped into the Violets, the Violet Hour, our opening act. Had a beer with them 
and walked them all back to the Sheraton in time for the cocktail party I had instigated at five o'clock. Took photographs of the impressive collection of drinks, got sloshed and went to bed, too early to witness Doris fighting with her boyfriend, Martin. Martin, Violet's guitarist, gaffer-taped to a chair and left out in the street unconscious. And Privet, who broke one finger and had eight stitches in another while rolling down the street on a cable drum. Just a quiet affair, really. We were later billed quite a lot of money by the Sheraton for replacement of a hotel room carpet. Lord knows what they all got up to after I'd gone to bed. Monday, 21st of October. Brussels on Chêne Belgique. Had determined lie-in until 11 o'clock. Woke up not remembering going to bed, but feeling nonetheless not bad considering the cocktail party last night. Showered, dressed and went walkies. Bought Fifi a jacket and jeans and bought Crompton, my new pet name for Niall, some shoes. Couldn't help buying chocolates for Diz, although she probably won't eat them. Came back to the hotel around three, then off to sound check at the Enchant Belgique. Painless enough. We had to meet a room full of competition winners at six, so we stayed at the venue until showtime, which was early at 7.45. Last night of the tour was accompanied by traditional jolly japes. The crew had replaced some of my collection slides with dodgy porno pics, and I was unable to control the projector to stop them. During Incommunicado, they all filed on like Tiller girls and did high kicks. The audience were great and everyone enjoyed themselves, even the band. After the show, I showered at the hotel and left all my underwear in the dressing room trunk. Tuesday, 22nd of October. Brussels home. Got up, packed, checked out, went to the airport, bought socks. Flew to Heathrow and arrived home late afternoon. Dished out gifts to my girls. Sue's mum was at our house. Everyone was relieved I'd got home before Sue had the baby which is due tomorrow. Went to bed early, but... And we are back. I hope you enjoyed the section of, of diary. Um, I've got a few questions, uh, one of which I, I forgot to ask last week, but actually then... Having uh, had this section of diary, it comes back up, so it's not a problem I forgot last week. And that is the whole question of the Violet Hour. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Violet um, Because the Violet Hour were a support band that I actually have fond memories of, and I've still got the CD. Right. Um, but then you allude to the fact that they were all a bit off the rails. No, 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 no. I wouldn't say they were all a bit off the rails. Um, did she play the flute, Doris? She it's did all, play it's the It's all a, a little bit in my, you know, gone into the mists of my vague memory somewhat. Um, but what was interesting about the Violet Hour uh, was the, I guess, was the one the onesies she used to wear, which were um, quite something to behold. And, they um, were. And the fact that she played the flute. I don't remember much more of, uh, 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 about their music, to be honest. Because I see so little of the support bands because I'm always asleep. Uh, I'm usually on on the bus in bed and and I miss them. And I, but but I I do make a point of of taking one day out of each tour. You know where where I 
where for whatever reason I don't need to sleep and I'll 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 go and check the sport band out. Um and they did they were quite interesting. But unfortunately, however interesting their music was 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 slightly eclipsed uh by the big fight that they had in the Brussels Hilton. And of course the fact that for whatever reason our crew decided that they would gaffer tape the guitar player to a chair on the which I think was on about the fourteenth floor. I, I think he'd passed out. He'd had a lot to drink. He'd had a lot to drink and he'd passed out, so they gaffer taped him into into the chair that he was asleep in. And then they then put that chair in the in the lift, went down fourteen floors, took him out into the street and left him in the middle of a busy road. Uh which is frankly a ludicrous thing to do and could have caused all kinds of carnage and death of of either him or or the people swerving to avoid him so that was mad but then there were mad things used to happen a lot more in those days um fortunately i'm here to tell you i'd gone to bed and i missed it all but um either before they gaffer taped him into the chair and left him in the road or after um he had a big fight with Doris because I think Doris and Martin, the guitarist, were an item. I don't know if they were married, but they were they were an item. And they they had quite a fiery relationship. And I'm I'm ta- I heard afterwards, the following day I heard that they'd had a big set to with one another in the hotel room. We were having a party. Did I say all this? There was a there was a sort of I think it was the end of the tour. So there was an end of tour party in the Brussels Hilton, in one of the one of the big rooms. Then some 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 poor sod drew the short straw and it happened in his room. Um, fortunately, it wasn't my room, which gave me the opportunity of going to bed, which I did before any of the true horror kicked off. Uh, but after I'd gone to bed, um, Doris and and husband, stroke boyfriend, had a big Barney, got into a fight, and there was blood all over the place. Apparently, I mean, it was a proper fight; it wasn't just a, a you know a difference of opinion. And we were presented with a bill after that for uh, re that entire room, which was thousands of pounds because there was blood all over the carpet, and I think there were various other horrors in the bathroom. I can't begin to even... Well, I don't want to know what the bathroom looked like, but it was a real serious end of tour piss-up that got out of control with people fighting and being gaffer-taped in chairs and left in streets. And and also our sound engineer, Privet, the same night had done this thing where he'd gone out, and probably after they'd left the guy in the street with the gaffer-tape, had then seen one of these huge wooden cable drums and decided it would be funny to get hold of it and roll it down the road uh, with himself attached to it. It therefore rolled over all eight of his fingers, uh, crushing them. And the following, the, the, next, the next time I saw him for a show, uh, he had all four, all eight of his fingers in splints on the on the mixing desk, you know, adjusting <laughs> the faders. Uh, and he had kind of sausage fingers anyway, Privet. So, you know, naturally he had sausage fingers. So once they were once they were swollen due to being broken and then covered in splints, they were quite a sight to behold. <laughs> 
Um, those are basically my memories of, of the Violet Hour. Bit of backstory for all of those who've just got the record, so that's uh, that's fine. Um, of other strange things, because it's a strange <laughs> few days, there's the owl that you then had that you decided to decide whether you left at the hotel or not, the one that had been left behind for you. Yes, there was a strange pot owl that appeared in, I think I think one of the crew turned up and said somebody had given it, someone had passed it on to him from out front with instructions to give it to me. And there was something a bit unnerving about this owl. It wasn't a cuddly owl. I mean, the pottery isn't going to be cuddly anyway. But it, it wasn't a kind. It didn't make you think, oh, an owl. It made you think, ooh, ooh. You know, it had something strange about it. It was just an odd, odd voodoo-like thing. Um, and so at the end of the evening, I thought, well, you know, I'm not, not bloody taking that with us. And, and, then, and then I thought, oh, hang on. And I... And, I can't remember what happened. I, I think I'd, I, I think this owl just kept reappearing, and we kept trying to leave it behind. And uh, somebody in the crew kept putting it back in the drawer, you know, after we'd gone, you know. And then we'd we'd be somewhere else, and you'd open a drawer, and it'd be looking at you. Um, so it was a malevolent owl, and I think we've probably still got it, despite having tried to throw it away. It's one of those things you keep throwing away and it keeps coming back. So the owl's there, it's malevolent, and it's also got help. It's got followers. <laughs> it definitely had, you know, Doing a follower. Bidding. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Disciples. Yeah. It had... Disciple, disciple. Disciples. Disciples of the owl. Or a disciple were, yeah. um, you know, slave, slaves to the owl. Slaves to the owl. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a good name for something. I'm not quite sure They're what. They're probably still out there. You know, they might have built a church by now. Who knows? Who knows? Oh, I bet they've built a, a church cult. by now. Cult. <laughs> um, um, right, I, I guess I'll talk to you next week. Okie dokie. Okay. Well, God, is that the time? Yeah, I'd, I'd better run That's off. The time. You, I've got to run off. You've got to get, you've got to get off. You've got to get to racket. Got to get a studio, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you next time, mate. Pre- Take care. Pretend to be a musician. All right, mate. Lots of love. Cheers. Mine. There you go. Thank you, Sharon Damara. Adele, Amy, Tim Stone, and Tony Shortland. Gareth Davis, Kim Salter, Karen Jack, and Ian Marillion Maidley. La 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 Thank you, Ralph Schmidt. Cheers, Sam Newton, Paulina Antipova. Thank you very much, Polly. Muriel Dumortier and Michael Hardy. Not forgetting Matty Thorne 
Jean-François Tremblay, almost certainly from Montreal. Nicola Grant Stevenson, Paul Schofield, Andrea Walker, and Stuart It's quite tricky playing the piano and reading these at the same time. Christy English. Thank you, Janet Pearson. Mark Logan. And Chris Wardle. And Matt Schofield. Thank you, Ian Cooper. And Bob Kelly. Miriam Melly, how could I forget her? She leaves messages 40 yards long every day. Thank you, Miriam Melly, in Switzerland. And my good friend, Jordan Sivitz. Hope you're all right, Jordan. And Wayne Morellian. I've been listening to the Pet Shop Boys lately Perhaps you can tell (laughs) I've been getting away with it all my life Getting away with it Did I mention... Darren Gray Cause that's gonna have to be all For today Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>